back to Mark 9, come as far as verse 38, where it says, Now John answered him, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, or Rabbi, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus has just been talking to them about being the greatest in the kingdom, being the servant of all, and he's used a child as the example that he's brought forth. And, uh, you know, he says in verse 37, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And this causes John to start thinking um, about what Jesus has said and thinking about this other situation. Makes John think of this person they had told not to cast out demons in Jesus' name. It's interesting concept in it. Don't do that. He's non-credentialed. That is, he's not one of us. And this may have been particularly bothersome for the disciples because this other one was successfully casting out demons when his chosen disciples had failed to do so. And so it's like, you know, John's thing back says, yeah, we told that guy not, you know, Jesus said, you know, receive and So Jesus' response indicates that there are some who could work miracles in his name that were not part of the group that surrounded Jesus. This one was not part of the wider group of disciples that stayed about where Jesus was, at least at this particular time. So the casting out of demons is a miracle. A comparatively weak man taking command over one of much greater power. Demons will only yield to Jesus' power, to his authority. Attempting to cast out demons is a dangerous undertaking. You recall the situation in Acts 19. Uh, Paul is ministering in Ephesus, and in verse 11 it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. They're not just miracles. These are unusual miracles. We might think of miraculous miracles, like a double thing or something. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. This is just, you know, and uh, the word for handkerchiefs is kind of like sweat rags. Uh, they didn't have the AC there in Ephesus where Paul was preaching. And so, you know, he'd be because it was it was hot. And so, you know, even the, the sweat rags they would take and, and it would people would be healed from just these claws that had touched his body. So it says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. It's a dangerous business to attempt to cast out demons. And, and, you know, if you don't have the authority, if you're looking for the authority of somebody else, you know, you need the authority of Jesus, not somebody else who knows Jesus. 
Of this one John speaking about who, who they told to cease and desist, Adam Clark uh, has a suggestion. He says, we may therefore safely imagine that this was either one of John the Baptist's disciples who at his master's command had believed in Jesus or one of the 70 whom Christ had sent out. He did that in Luke chapter 10. Who after he had fulfilled his commission had retired from accompanying the other disciples, but as he still held fast his faith in Christ and walked in good conscience, the influence of his masters still the influence of his masters still continued with him, so that he could cast out demons as well as the other disciples. Well, better in this case. Well, we simply know very little about this man except that he knew the power, the authority of Jesus' name, and by faith he cast demons out of those who were so afflicted. But Jesus says to John and the others, he who is not against us is on our side. And really he's saying, he who is not against me is on my side. Um, but he identifies with himself with those whom he loves, as he still does. So Jesus was being actively opposed by the religious and political leaders. And here's one doing good in Jesus' name. Jesus indicates that none who do good in his name will go unrewarded. Of course, Jesus is still the one who determines rewards, salvation, and who will enter his kingdom. His followers may be surprised when they see some who are commended and some who are not. We know also that when Jesus returns, there will be those who claim to have done mighty works in his name, but he does not receive them. Uh, these could be genuine things, which would, and according to Paul in Second Thessalonians, would be lying signs and wonders. Or they could be just fraudulent. It's in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus talks about this, talking about every tree that bears good fruit, you know, bad trees bear bad fruit, good trees bear good, good fruit. Therefore, by their fruit you will know them, verse 20. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just speaking words, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Never at any point did I know you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, you know what they were doing. They were doing in his name, whether it was genuine or not. But he says, it's lawlessness, what you're, what you're carrying out, because it wasn't his will. He said, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. There are people with differing motives for speaking the name of Jesus or associating themselves with his name. Are their motives in line with the nature of Jesus? Are they following his will in obedience or are they more interested in promoting their own agenda? In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, Paul's writing from Roman prison to the Philippians. They had sent something, a gift to him to help him with his needs. He says in verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. He said, the only reason I'm here, everybody knows, is because of Jesus. 
And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then he said, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, those who preach Christ from envy and strife. They preach Christ from selfish ambition. That still goes on. Not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter do it out of love, the ones who are doing it from goodwill, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. You know, the name of Jesus, getting the name of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus out there. Um, you know, hearing that name can awaken somebody to their need, even from somebody that, you know, is preaching from selfish ambition. And it's happened. I mean, we have testimonies of people, you know. They heard so-and-so who's, you know, pretty much a heretic. And yet, they come to know the Lord under under His ministry, you know. And then the Lord leads them, you know, <laughs> out of there if they're listening. Well, in the same way as Paul here, we must many times withhold judgment and allow the Lord to deal with the situation. In speaking of genuine believers over in Romans chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 8, Paul says, Receive one who's weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Don't get in big arguments. For one believes he may eat all things, and he who is weak eats only vegetables. This was a big situation in the early church because of the meat that was sacrificed to idols. And he says, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So both sides have a responsibility to love one another. He said, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike, so even in relation to Sabbath days, feast days, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. It's an individual matter of conscience. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So we don't want to sit in judgment upon one another. We can oftentimes discern whether what someone is teaching is in accord with sound doctrine, whether it's true to the truth of the Word of God, but we cannot know the motives of the heart. And so we're to deal with one another in grace. There's no power in Jesus I'm sorry, there is power in Jesus' name and faith in His name, but it's not a magic formula. It's not the word Jesus that has power. If it was, the sons of Sceva would have been in good shape, you know. But it's the person of Jesus. There are many Jesuses in the world. And I think most of them play baseball. <laughs> but only one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 12, after Peter and John had healed the lame man as they were going up to the temple, uh, this, this crowd runs together and they're 
they're really excited about Peter and John. And in Acts 3.12, Peter, when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? Later in verse 16, he says, In his name, that is Jesus' name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, Paul exhorts the Colossians and says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also, uh, it's added for us, must do, but that's what he's saying. Oh, come on, Lord. As Christ forgave me? Isn't that pretty high standard? But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And he says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, the power of His name, or to walk in His name, do all things in His name. There's another context where Jesus uh, says nearly the opposite. He says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. But this was in the context of them accusing Him of casting out demons by the power of the devil. And so, you know, you're on one side or the other. You're either with him or against him. And there's nothing, no neutral, no neutral ground in the middle. So if someone gives even a cup of, I think some say cold water, but a cup of water in his name, there's going to be reward for that. Uh, there's a reward for receiving and offering a kindness and help to Jesus' servants. The motive of the heart is important. It's because you belong to Christ, because you are His disciple. If someone uh, gives you something, or you give something to someone because of that. Uh, Henry Morris says regarding the phrase, in my name, he says, anything sincerely done in the name of Christ, thereby indicating faith in all that His name implies, even if not done with the structure of an approved church or other organization, merits the approval of Christ. Um, it doesn't have to be a formal religious ceremony. One sign of a cult is a group that teaches that only those who belong to their group are redeemed right with God and will be in heaven. Jesus is the one who saves, not any group. The church is for growth of the body, edification, comfort, correction, etc. The church proclaims the gospel of the grace of God through Christ Jesus but it is only through faith in Him and the power of His name, not in any church or group, that salvation is found. So verse 42 of, of uh, Mark 9, Jesus says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to stumble, 
It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's kind of appropriate for the season of Halloween, you know, chopping off hands and feet and eyes plucked out. I was was noticing this year, for some reason it struck me for the first time, I was driving somewhere and already, you know, in September there was this sign that said, Happy Halloween! And I thought, what a contradiction in terms. (laughs) All this darkness and hatred and, and demonology and death. Happy, happy. Well, Jesus talks about this. Apparently, he still has a child in his in their midst because he says, "Whoever causes one of these to stumble, if someone treats a disciple of Jesus well in his name, they'll receive a reward. If, however, they put a stumbling block in the way of one of his disciples, that is, causing doubt or seeking to destroy their faith." As is is the case many times in our schools and colleges, actually now it's more so than not, I think, uh, that there's this attempt to destroy people's faith. It's not the only place where it happens. But Jesus said it's better to die an ignominious death than to be the subject of this judgment. I mean, this is a comparative thing here. It's better to have the millstone, you know, the thing that grinds the corn and stuff, tied around your head, cast into the depths of the sea. Not near the shore even, you know, but you're out there, you're going down. And then you're down in the depths and the mud and the cold and the darkness. That's better than causing one of his disciples to stumble. In Romans 14 again, further on in chapter uh, verses 12 and 13, he says, let, let each of us give an, So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So we want to take heed to this warning. No stumbling blocks that would harm another's faith. And this is particularly problematic in the case of a little one, which in this case an actual child that Jesus has, or a young believer, someone who's immature in the faith. Very easy to cause a stumbling there. A major cause of stumbling is the case of one who claims to be following Jesus, claims to be his disciple, but sins in a way that causes another harm, that causes them to question the validity of faith in Christ. This is true of every disciple, but is particularly severe when it is the case of someone in leadership. When someone in leadership falls, that is, when a pastor fails morally, it's easy for those who don't know the truth that is in Jesus to write off the gospel as invalid. That's a great tragedy. But it may also harm the faith of other believers, especially the young and tender in their faith. If you were old in the Lord, 
I know some of you are, at least. Then you realize that such failures do not invalidate the truth of the gospel or the power of Jesus to save. You are aware of your own failures, however small, as we continue to fall short of the grace of or the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3.23. When worship leaders, musicians, or pastors walk away from their faith, as has been the case publicized in the international news lately, it only proves God's word to be true that he may be justified when he speaks. In Romans 3, 3 and 4, Paul says, What if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. He is the one who is true, always true. And he's justified when he speaks because he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Psalms 51, verses 1 through 4, this psalm that David penned after Nathan had confronted him about Bathsheba and Uriah. David writes, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And this is... Uh, what is quoted in Romans. Now, if these ones who depart from the faith, they stumble, if they depart, they're truly His, then they will repent of their unbelief and they'll return. We know this from Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 18 through 21, where he, speaking of some who have strayed concerning the faith in verse 18, saying that the resurrection's already passed, they overthrow the faith of some. He says, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's a good verse for eternal security. The Lord knows those who are his. But if you're naming the name of Christ and you're saying you're eternally secure, but you're carrying on an iniquity, the Lord says, depart from that iniquity. You can't have any assurance if you're living in that way. But the Lord knows those who are His. That, that doesn't change. He says, he goes on to say, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. And then he says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, the dishonor, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So, you don't have to stay in that place. You know, you can cleanse yourself by coming to Him, allowing His cleansing power to be supplied to you. But how much harm has been done in the meantime as this person's out there, you know, renouncing their faith in international media. Excuse me. Thank God that He is who He is. That His grace is real and abundant. And that He is willing to abundantly pardon this passage in Mark that we just read has an escape clause. Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9. 
tells us the escape clause from, clause from uh, this place in hell. He says in uh, Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. All that wicked person has to do is turn back to the Lord, repent of their sins. And he has said he will abundantly pardon. They'll be delivered from this passage concerning hell. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You are in a present contract. You have a new contract if you're a believer. But this contract you entered into stipulates the wages of sin is death. We are offered a new contract, a new covenant, an upgrade. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 This is our escape clause from the contract of sin and death. We can choose the new terms that God offers. Come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Turn our lives over to Him and walk with Him in righteousness with a new heart that He will provide. Change your path. Turn from your way to His way and enjoy peace with God and abundant life. Thank God that there is forgiveness with Him. Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Is it, you know, He's keeping track of all our iniquities and adding them up. He says, if, if, if you were to do that, who could stand in your presence? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. You know, when he forgives them, those marks are not there. They're gone. He doesn't remember them anymore according to this covenant that he's instituted. There's a song by uh, Pat Terry. I think it's The Gift of Mercy is what it's called. And he talks about all these rotten things he's done, you know, and then he says, If I ever get to heaven it will be mercy, not justice, that is served. And we need the mercy of God. And yet this mercy is just if I have committed my soul to his care, for he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, according to Romans three, twenty four through twenty six. But it's his justice, not mine that prevails. It is His righteousness that is established and it is freely accounted to me based on my faith in Jesus Christ. He takes my sin upon Him. I receive the gift of righteousness before God. What a deal. You can't get a better deal than that. Well, Jesus goes on to talk about maiming yourself, cutting off hands and feet and uh, plucking out eyes. He gives fair warning of the seriousness of sin and the necessity of dealing with it in extreme severity. And uh, some many times have misunderstood these scriptures. You'll find people who have cut their hand off or their foot or plucked out their eye. Um, you know, based on this passage. And of course, this is not what Jesus is saying. He is giving fair warning of the seriousness of having to get away from what causes you to sin. Can your hand cause you to sin? No. 
It can be used by you to commit sin, but it's not the cause of your sin. It may carry out the sinful desires of your heart. Can your foot cause you to sin? No. It can be used to carry you to a place where you sin. Your feet might be ugly, but they're not the cause of your sin. Can your eye cause you to sin? No. What you view with your eye can cause you to sin in thought and desire. It may provoke you to sin uh, in action or in word, but your eye is not the cause of your sin. William McDonald says, Fortunately, it is never morally necessary to amputate a hand or foot or to cut out an eye. Jesus did not suggest that we should practice such extremes. All he said was it would be better to sacrifice the use of these organs than to be dragged down to hell by their abuse. What can cause you to sin? Your heart and your mind. And you can't pluck these out. Jesus is not recommending suicide. That would be the only way to pluck these things out. In uh, Mark chapter 7, back when uh, they were talking, they were criticizing Jesus' disciples because they ate without washing their hands. And he gave them, you know, this rebuke about keeping the traditions of men instead of the commandments of God. In Mark 7:15, he had said, There's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach? I guess you can sin with your stomach, right? If you put too much stuff. Okay. And it's eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And this is a comment. You know, this, Jesus saying this indicated that foods are not unclean in themselves. It was the covenant that was made with Israel in which some things were stimulate, uh, stipulated as unclean. <coughs> Excuse me, verse 20. He said... What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. What comes out? For within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders. And Jesus said, even in your thought life, you can be guilty of these things. You don't have to actually carry it out. Theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So he's not recommending this maiming of yourself, but he is, he is emphasizing the ruthlessness with which we must deal with temptation and sin. If these things could prevent you from sinning, the maiming would be infinitely worth it. It would be. If you could cut off your hand and no more sin, that'd be, that'd be great. But it won't work. Now, you can't pluck out a sinful heart, but God will create in you a new one if you ask him to do so. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, 
not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. David Guzik says the problem with taking Jesus' words literally here is that bodily mutilation does not go far enough in controlling sin. Sin is more a matter of the heart than of any particular limb or organ. And if I cut off my right hand, my left is still ready to sin. If I completely dismember my body, I can still sin in my mind and in my heart. We must maim that which truly draws us to sin and cut it off before it can result in sin. Now, James chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, we're told the process. Now, James first says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation or testing, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. It's that desi- the desires that are in the sinful heart that begin the process. And so that's the temptation. I want whatever it is. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When I decide, yeah. I'm going to go with that before I ever do anything. I'm, you know, I'm sinful. I'm guilty. Gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's the wages of sin is death. It's, this is just explaining the process in more detail. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He's all light. Nothing that's Coming to you from the darkness is coming from God. You know, he's light and in Him is no darkness at all. Over in Hebrews chapter 3, we're warned, beginning in verse 12, Beware, brethren, that lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is very deceitful. It's a lying. It lies. The temptation is a lie that comes to you. And sin is extremely deceitful. In verse 14, he says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. I like this because there are two tenses involved here. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold now the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. He doesn't say, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, then we will become partakers of Christ. No, he says, we have become partakers of Christ. So there's a proof here, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. I like that. Clarifying. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, it says, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We've got to endure, and enduring temptation, testing is part of that. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. For you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. That's the extent that we are to go, is to shedding our own blood if necessary (laughs) to resist sin. And, you know, he's talking about those that have been martyred, that they have, you know, been true to Christ to the point where they have died and their their blood has been shed. Now this section of Mark, this last part here, is another place where modern versions usually differ from the historically received text. The phrase, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, is only found once in the later discovered manuscripts. If you have a very modern translation, verses 44 and 46 do not appear at all. And you won't know that unless you're looking at verse numbers. I've got some that I got free. And the translations in themselves, some parts of them are, are good. you know. But I wouldn't recommend reading any of those uh, apart from a King James or a New King James where you're going to see the manuscript uh, that is approved and was given to us by God, I think. But they can be helpful in some ways, but... Don't rely upon them alone if you are using one of those um, Bibles. The phrase is still found in verse 48 in all manuscripts, uh, at least you know, including those that, that leave the other two out. But in our text, Jesus is repeating this three times to show the imperative of dealing in severe ruthlessness with sin in our lives. There's a reason why it's there three times. It's not, you know, unimportant. This is an eternal life and death issue and deserving of all emphasis. Let me remind us again, however, that we will never defeat sin in the flesh. It is only by walking in the Spirit that victory over sinful thoughts and behaviors will be found. I would recommend... Uh, that you study again Romans 6 through 8 if you have any questions about this because he deals with it from our death with Christ all the way through to uh, walking in the Spirit. And that is the way to victory. That's the path to victory. Well, this phrase Jesus quotes three times is from Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 24. Well, it's verse 24 actually, but speaking of the eternal state of those who are lost. But if if we read from verse 22, he, uh, Isaiah says, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain, speaking to Israel. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So we see this repeated in the book of Revelation where the nations are coming in the book of, of Zechariah. And he says in verse 24, this is the last verse in the book of Isaiah, the last word of his prophecy. They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be in abhorrence 
to all flesh. Now, the word abhorrence is Hebrew deron, and it's only found here in the Old Testament uh, and in Daniel chapter 12 and two, verse 2 where he says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So it's abhorrence and contempt is what's being spoken of in using that word. Henry Morris says, They will look upon the carcasses. The Lord Jesus used this terminology in describing the awful nature of eternal hell, the lake of fire, in our passage here, the ultimate fate of all who die without Christ. This verse intimates that redeemed men and women will somehow be able to view the sufferings of the lost in that distant corner of the universe, he says, which certainly cannot be on the new earth, and we'll see why, in order to contemplate the magnificence of salvation. This probably will be only a one-time viewing, for soon the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. That's Isaiah 65:17, which also speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. So they're going to look upon the corpses of those who have, you know, perished or perishing. They never completely perish. It's this is a spiritual state that's being spoken of here. We you know, it's illustrated by the physical, right? The worms eat on corpses and and uh, if they're in the dump where these were, they'd get burned up, you know. But we're talking about a spiritual state in which corruption continues unabated and the fires of desire are never satisfied. Jesus compares it in other places with outer darkness. The absence of the light of God, and whether we want to think of this as, you know, actual worms or physical fire, I mean, this is the state of a man separated from God, and so uh, certainly there there would be desires that would never be satisfied. There would be a continual corruption of the person because that is what sin does, and so. Um, you know, people talk about God sending people to hell. People choose to go there. It's their own willful choice. And their condition, you know, God doesn't have to keep stoking the fires and keeping the worms going. Their condition is a natural consequence of their separation from Him. Uh, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 15, we find this situation of the judgment of the devil. In verse 10, the devil who deceived them, uh, the nations, was cast into the lake of fire. This is after he's released from his thousand-year prison. He's cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet still are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. They've been there for this thousand years. They're still there. And they're still suffering. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is the unbelieving dead. It's not the believing dead. It says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Uh, Some say death and hell, because that's, Hades is translated as hell sometimes. This is a different word in Mark 9. Delivered up 
the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's a second death. There was an, an old saying, and I grabbed part of it from my Twitter handle when I was doing a lot of tweeting. tweeting. Uh, an old saying that if you're born twice, you will die once. But if you're born only once, you will die twice. You'll have the physical death and the spiritual death, the second death, as it's spoken of here. If you're born again, if you're born twice, then you may suffer that physical death unless you're included in the rapture. <laughs> you know, if the Lord comes back before the, your body gives out. Uh, but you'll only die that once. You won't be subject to the second death. And that's, uh, well, that one's uh, Revelation 21.8. If you want to jot that down, that's another reference to the second death. Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of this place as well. Uh, when he's judging the nations, 25.41, it says, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, and that's the goats, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There's this everlasting burning. And it's not prepared for mankind. God doesn't want any people to go there. It's the devil and his angels to whom it is for whom it is prepared. And in Luke chapter twelve, verses four and five, Jesus says I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And who has that power? God, Jesus. You know, some people interpret that as the devil. <laughs> they say, oh, I better be afraid of the devil. No, it's talking about the power of God. So the lake of fire is the final destination for those who reject the free offer of forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. You notice in Revelation 20 that death and Hades, that is, all the unrighteous dead, were cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Hades is translated hell in the King James Version. New King James uses the Greek word Hades. It's a temporary holding cell, or was, and we might say, for the dead. Well, it is a temporary holding cell for the dead until the final judgment. We read about it in Luke 16, if you want to read that. Once again, it's verses 19 through 31. But you have the rich man and Lazarus, and they, they both die, and they go to this place called Hades. But one, the rich man is in torments. Uh, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom also known as paradise, when Jesus was dying on the cross and the thief uh, said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So Abram's bosom, paradise, the other side torments. There's this great gulf in between. Nobody can pass from one to the other. So it contained these two compartments. At one point, but we know that when Jesus was resurrected, things changed. In Ephesians chapter four, verses seven, or verse seven, it says, "To each one of us was given." Excuse me. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. What does this mean, he ascended, but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And then he speaks about the gifts he's given. So when Jesus was resurrected, when he ascended, he led captivity captive and he emptied out paradise. He emptied out Abram's bosom and took them with him. That's the indication I see. Psalm 68:18 is where this is quoted from. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. So Jesus empties this side now. When we, when the righteous die, Second Corinthians 5:8, we're confident. Yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The Lord's in heaven. When we die, we go to where He is. And in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, speaking of the Messiah, uh, the Messiah is speaking, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. This is the song that we sing. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. That's the Old Testament equivalent of Hades. But it's... it's it, it can be translated as the grave or as the abode of the dead. It says, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So he would not be corrupted in that place, in the tomb or in the place of death. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. So he emptied this part and the only thing left to deliver to the lake of fire is the unsaved among men and women who still remain there. That's still a holding place. They, they will appear at the great white throne of judgment. And you know, then their final destination will be determined, which is the lake of fire. This is a desperately critical situation for those living who have not believed in Jesus. Only while a person lives can they escape the judgment of hell. The escape clause is only good for a person who's alive. Hebrews 9.26 27 tells us that it's pointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. Reminded me of a song by L. Norman. He said, You live once and you die once with no reincarnate episodes. You can't hitchhike your way to heaven or get there by just being good. The rules were laid down long ago when the spikes went in the wood. I don't remember which song it is. So Jesus in Mark 9, he speaks of hell using the Greek word Gehenna in contrast to Hades. Gehenna is an everlasting state. This is the final destination. This is the lake of fire. Hades is that temporary place. Gehenna is an everlasting state as he emphasizes the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. Gehenna in Jesus' day was located in the valley of Hinnom where before the captivity in Babylon, infant sacrifice was practiced by, by those who turned from the worship of the true God to that of Baal or Molech. It later became a garbage dump where all sorts of refuse was dumped, sometimes including the bodies of unclaimed criminals. The worm was always devouring and the fires were always burning. 
This is the place Jesus used to illustrate the fires of hell, the lake of fire, warning everyone that they do not go there. God's desire is not that anyone go there. We've quoted many times Second Peter 3, 9. Um, He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. He's made provision for all through the propitiation of Jesus Christ from which he has, for, by which he has satisfied his wrath toward sin for all who will believe. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He's the propitiation for everyone. First Timothy 2.6 says, He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Later in First Timothy 4.10, he says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. That he is the Savior of those who believe, but He's made the payment for all men if they would but believe. And of course, John 3.16, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, David Guzik says, Some from every tribe and tongue will have a destiny of ultimate triumph. Some also will have the destiny freely chosen of ultimate tragedy. Using the images of eternal damnation, their worm does not die, their fire is not quenched. Isaiah describes the fate of those who reject God, even if they had the veneer of empty religion. After this life, says Poole, and at the day of judgment, they shall go into eternal torments where they will feel a work of conscience that shall never die and a fiery wrath of God upon their souls and bodies that shall never go out. The book of Isaiah closes with a sobering contrast revealing the ultimate eternal importance of this present life. Each life can choose its destiny. Worship or the worm. Which is it for you? So Jesus here talking about cutting off your hand, your foot, plucking out your eye. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into Gehenna where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 49, he says, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. Well, first, all will experience the fire of trial and tribulation. Our faith in the truth of God will be tested simply by the fact that we live in a fallen world. Beyond this, however, God will allow specific tests of our faith. Is our faith genuine? Will it hold up to the test? Just as we test materials, so God will test His people and their faith. In First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, He says to them, talking about the promises we've received, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, He's talking about their living hope, even, now, even though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Later in chapter 4, in verse 12, he says, 
Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of Christ? If the, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So we're going to experience trials. We're going to experience tribulation. And we have Jesus and the apostles as our examples in this. The fire will come to everyone. Speaking of believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 11, uh, Paul says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Speaking of the experience of believers, he's speaking specifically of the apostles here, but that's true of everyone. The work will be tested. See what lasts. If something lasts, there's a reward. Not the person is saved, but suffers loss. Enter in with a smell of smoke. Even if the believer's work is burned up, they shall be saved as though through fire. But the non-believer will have nothing worth saving, not having the life of Christ within. And they shall enter into this horrible state, as we read at the end of Mark 9. We will either be refined by the fire of the Lord or be cast into the fire of judgment in Gehenna or the lake of fire. This is based not upon our works or performance, but upon our acceptance of the forgiveness of sins purchased through the blood of Jesus. Under the law, every sacrifice of grain was to be offered with salt, making it flavorful, pleasing, a flavorful, pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. In Leviticus 2.13, he says, Every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Salt was a valuable commodity in that day, and many covenants of men were sealed with salt. Uh, the Roman soldier would get paid in salt, at least partially also in plunder. <laughs> but, you know, that's it, where the saying comes from, a man worth his salt. Uh, so, you know, because that, that was something you could trade, and, and it was it was a valuable commodity. Covenants of men were sealed with salt. Now, one source says an agreement that involves salt symbolizes one that is meant to be perpetual, uncorruptible, and indissoluble. 
But he says, if salt's not salty, uh, it will have no other use than to be cast out, trod under the feet of men. It only is good for killing vegetation. Rather than flavoring, it only kills what it contacts. But he tells us, be salty, be at peace with others. You know, Jesus said, salt is good. I like to quote that to my doctor when he's talking about blood pressure. You know? And they always say, well, everything's in moderation, you know, which is true. I have to, you know, I acknowledge that. But salt is good. Jesus said it, you know, right? Yeah. Um, and we're to be salty. We're to be at peace with others. There's an alternate illustration given concerning, you know, this is saltiness. There's an illustration given concerning uh, being an aroma. That's in Second Corinthians chapter 2, 14 through 17, where he says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So this fragrance is supposed to be surrounding you as you're going forth. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. We stink. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Smell good. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God and in Christ. So if you believed in Jesus, you have been made salty. Maintain that salty state, pleasing to God, flavorful and preservative of the culture around you. And stink it up with the fragrance of Christ uh, wherever you go.